The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down, try not to try too hard, it's just a love ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Taylor, and I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who will be joining us a little later in the, today's show. Roger publishes Trader Tracks. And also another partner of mine is Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling. Unfortunately, Chen will not be with us uh, again this week, although I do hope he'll join us next week. He is in the middle of a move. He's uh, just got back from Florida, a vacation with his family, and then he's uh, actually moving his residence from one place in New Jersey to the next. And so it was a little inconvenient to have Chen on with us today. So uh, I suggested he just take a break, and we'll have him on when he's uh, when he's all relaxed and, and set in his new residence. Um, we do want to mention again that we provide for you a special introductory offer, uh, one time only, to each of our three newsletters. Uh, my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, uh, Trader Tracks, and What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling. Call my assistant in New York, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. Or go to the website miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, where you can sign up for all three of those newsletters. I like to say the best place to go, though, to keep track of all that I am doing is jtaylormedia, j-a-y-taylormedia.com. There you can access this radio show, all three of those newsletters I just mentioned, and you can see some interviews, uh, video interviews that I've recently done with some 14 different companies. Well, they're not all posted yet, but a few of them are. Uh, of companies, I think, have a real chance to uh, become very valuable uh, as they're building wealth. Primarily, they're, well, they're all mining companies or mine exploration companies, some in production. Uh, more of them are building wealth in the ground. And by the way, that seems to be where the biggest value is coming from, not the big producing gold mining companies, but those that may be new producers or those that are finding uh, lots of gold and other minerals in the ground, that seems to be historically where the big money is made in the 
uh, resource sector rather than with the major mining companies. Um, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, they are Crocodile Gold, Go West Limited, Trevally Mining Corporation, Entertopia Corporation, Smash Minerals Corporation, Ariga Gold Corp., uh, Sand Gold Corp., and Palangio Explorations, Inc., this week, our special guests, well, we have two of them. They are Doug Casey and Rick Rule. These are two very successful investors who have uh, very strong libertarian views as well. So they fit into this show quite well, I must say, uh, turning hard times into good times. Both of these gentlemen agree, I think it's fair to say, that uh, I agree with them for sure, that uh, when we have personal liberty, we have a chance to increase our happiness and our wealth. Uh, when you have government tyranny, which unfortunately seems to be the direction we're heading in, you lose the opportunity to explore and develop your God-given talents. And so uh, both Casey and Rule believe very much uh, in limited government and, uh, the, uh, uh, and the freedom that comes with that for individuals to explore their own talents and ambitions. Uh, in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk to Robert McAllister. He is the president of Entertopia Corp., uh, he'll be with me to talk about his company's progress uh, in the southwestern United States as he's looking to explore for silver and copper. Um, and uh, then later in the day, Roger Wiegand will be joining me to talk about what he thinks are some important changes in the market relating to the news coming out of Greece. Finally, uh, towards the end of today's show, Ted Ohashi will be with me as well, and he'll be talking about a company called Goldex Resources Corp., that's a gold exploration company with a project in Guatemala. Well, before we go to our first break, uh, I'd like to just give you a few of my thoughts on the markets. Uh, I believe very definitely that America, uh, that America and the Western world in general are in decline, possibly a very steep decline. Now, whether this manifests itself through hyperinflation or a deflationary depression or some combination of the two, remains to be seen. It is not an insignificant question. It's a question that I've been asking on a regular basis and, and think about almost every day because if we go into a hyperinflation, uh, there are certain kinds of investments that are better or certain places to put your money that are better than if you're in a deflationary depression. Um, and, uh, you know, I believe that we, that it could be that Peter Granich is right in suggesting, as he did last week, that there's a good chance that we'll muddle through uh, with something, well, I don't know that Peter used the word muddle through, that we will continue on with both inflation and deflation. And make no mistake, that's what we are certainly inflicted with uh, or afflicted with right now, inflation and deflation. And I think both of them are worse than what we are, uh, what we are being told for sure. Uh, the GDP in this country is not what it's cracked up to be. If you were to take an honest reading of inflation as John Williams goes back and looks at inflation as it was uh, as it was counted in the past we'd be looking at something closer to double digits and the current low levels of inflation and you couple that with very very low interest rates and clearly savers in this country uh, people that have lived prudently and uh, and not lived beyond their means are being are being taxed in one way or another uh, by those who have lived beyond their means who are looking for bailouts from government, be they large corporate interests, um, large banking interests that seem to want to ensure that their multi-million 
dollar bonuses are intact, uh, or whether it's people at the lower end of the rung uh, who are so discouraged from looking for work that they are no longer looking. Uh, and this is where the inflation, or, or let's say the employment numbers, are really skewed um, and look much better than they really are because there are so many people now that have given up looking for work that they are um, uh, that that uh, that are just no longer counted in the uh, in the employment numbers as they were, however, in the 1930s. So if you look at that level, at that metric, we're looking at something closer to what we saw in the 1930s, I'm afraid. Well, I'm talking a lot of doomsday stuff, a lot of unhappy stuff, and uh, I shouldn't forget that the name of this show is Turning Hard Times into Good Times. So we do want to look into ways to, uh, to, to at least fend for ourselves and to at least try to protect our own uh, wealth and our family's wealth and those of our loved ones. And it is very important, though, to do that, I think, to really understand what is really going on, not necessarily what we are being told by the mainstream media is going on. Clearly, these are not normal times. I'm looking at the front page of my June 2011 newsletter, and on there I have the St. Louis Adjusted Monetary Base, and we're seeing it skyrocket. Clearly, after the post-Lehman Brothers uh, decline, we saw money pumped into our system like there is no tomorrow. And there is a, a very, uh, a very um, determined uh, reallocation of wealth from those who have, as I just said, those who have lived prudently, who have saved their money and put it aside, to those who have been uh, less prudent and who have been uh, who have living beyond their means, and they're looking for bailouts right now. So you really need to be. Uh, you really need to be aware of what's going on. Uh, if you are, you can come out ahead. Uh, I like to read one of my favorite newsletter writers is Richard Mayberry. Uh, and, and Richard has done exceptionally well for his subscribers over the years, as have uh, subscribers in my newsletter have done very well uh, also. I think anybody who's followed the Austrian School of Economics uh, have had a better reading and have not been surprised by the large number of catastrophic events that have hit our economy. In fact, they have been predicting them. The timing is not easy to predict, but to know that we are headed for trouble. You cannot live beyond your means. You cannot print money and expect to get wealthy, yet that's the going policy that we have. That's what we're being taught. In Economics 101, all we need to do is government for this to spend more than it takes in. That's the conventional wisdom and then print your way out of that, uh, out of that debt issue. And uh, clearly, the, the problems are getting worse, not better, with each of these new policy uh, movements. But we see uh, this enormous injection of new money into the, uh, into the monetary system, and, and yet nothing is getting better. We're seeing very tepid growth, if any growth at all, in the U.S. economy, if we look at real GDP, if we really looked at the inflation numbers rather than the fictitious ones that are given to us. But I thought a, a quote from Richard Mayberry in his June-July issue is, real, is really worth passing on to you. And here is what he said. Here is, and I quote Richard Mayberry, here is one of the few things I am extremely confident about. The person who studies what is happening to fiat currencies and to military affairs has an opportunity during the next 10 years to earn a colossal fortune. He who does not do this research could end up living out of a shopping cart under a bridge because the two trends are slowly, overwhelmingly, are overwhelming everything else. Richard goes on to say then that, uh, he says, I hope you will encourage the people you care about 
to get interested in military matters and currency debasement. War and changes in quantitative easing are controlling our futures, and I definitely agree with that. I have not been a person who has been big uh, in terms of uh, uh, following military expenditures. It's sort of something I, I think we can uh, protect ourselves by, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, metals markets and gold and silver and so forth. But clearly, there is something to be said because uh, the powers that be are very, very interested in war. And as Richard Mayberry, an excellent historian, has pointed out. Um, you know, you can almost predict these things, and he has done a very good job of it. So what we want to do on this show is try to understand what's really going on and prepare ourselves. If we can't change the macroeconomic picture, if we can't change the political picture, as Congressman Paul and a few other brave souls are trying to do, then at least what we must do, what we can do, and we must do, is try to protect our own interest and our family's interest as best we can. And, of course, towards that end, we are going to be talking to Robert uh, McAllister of Entertopia in a few seconds. Uh, after we go to the break, Robert will be with us to talk about what is going on with his company. And, of course, uh, we'll be talking to Doug Casey uh, and Rick Rule and um, Roger Wiegand and others, uh, Ted Ohashi as well, later in the show. So we're going to go to break now, and when we come back, I'll be with Robert McAllister. Don't go away. We'll be right back. business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Entertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Entertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CN. SX Exchange. Dravali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Dravali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with bite. 
with operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for a second time Robert McAllister. He is the president and CEO of Entertopia Corporation, trades on the CNSX exchange in Canada under the symbol TOP. Uh, you can buy it in the U.S. under the symbol ENRT. Uh, and trading in the 20 to 23 cent range uh, recently, that's down from when we first talked to Robert uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, 24 million shares, if I'm not mistaken, giving it a market cap of, I don't know, a little over about 6 million or so. Uh, some 500,000 or so cash in the bank, I suppose. Welcome, Robert, to uh, Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. It's good to be on the show today. Good. I uh, just want you to make sure that I got those numbers right. You had, I think the last time we talked, you had about $600,000 in the bank and uh, probably a little less than that now. Yeah, we're just we're under 500 now, and uh, we're getting gearing up for our uh, IP survey at Copper Hills in the next two weeks. Okay, we want to talk about Copper Hills, uh, a very promising, uh, a very promising silver and copper target. But before we do, I want to ask you a little bit about you know you've you're you know conservatively have stuck with the United States. There are things going on. Uh, both, I guess you could say, negative and positive for, for your, uh, certainly positive, I would guess, from, from your perspective. But uh, we've seen Barrick Gold come in and take over Equinox. You want to talk about that acquisition? Uh, copper, a copper story, isn't it? Yes. Uh, at first blush, the uh, the market didn't like it because Barrick is known predominantly as a gold producer, and then they, they came in and they paid $7.3 billion cash for Equinox, which was a 30% premium to the share price the day before, it worked out to about uh, 70 cents uh, per pound for copper is what Barrick paid for the uh, indicated and inferred resource that uh, Equinox has. So, uh, I mean, that's that's a huge boost to the copper uh, sector. Historically, copper has been bought for anywhere from 3 to 10 cents in the ground. So it's showing that you, here you have one of the biggest uh, gold producers in the world and arguably the best-run mining company is now taking a big chunk and moving into the copper uh, sector. 
Robert, where was that uh, that project that they bought? That project is in Zambia, so uh, they've had a good uh, track record of uh, attracting capital. And, uh, you know, Barrick's a big company, so they feel that they can go in there and look for other copper deposits in that part of the world. No, I wouldn't think that Zambia would be considered... Um you know, very high in, in, uh, in terms of its uh, political safety. I, I'm not really sure. I'm not that familiar. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn. But uh, uh, it's certainly other places like the United States or Canada would be considered a safer place to do business, I would think, and still 73 cents a pound in the ground. That's right. I, I, you know, they're looking at what the, the net returns, uh, the least recent results that have come out from copper mining companies. Profit margins are over or near 60%, which is well above what the returns are on currently in the gold sector. Mm-hmm. Well, um, okay, so Zambia, uh, there have been some problems also in Peru recently uh, in a, a silver deposit down there. Would you care to talk about that? Yes, there's been uh, there's been rumblings for several months, and then unfortunately uh, this past weekend there was actually uh, some people killed uh, protesting uh, one one of the bigger projects down there, and unfortunately uh, for uh, Canadian mining companies, if you're if you're not the size of a barrack, uh, sometimes it can be an awkward place to be, and unfortunately for shareholders in some of these companies, they've lost 50 to 70 percent of their money as uh, people are demanding their fair share. Hmm. So political problems. And, and that particular situation, was there a uh, was a mining license revoked, perhaps? Uh, the, apparently that's the government said that. They've taken the license, and, the, and now the company's saying they're going to sue. So uh, we'll see what happens over time, but it's never a fun situation as an employee of the company or a shareholder. Well, I must say, uh, I wish I could be somewhat more optimistic. I am, I am optimistic in terms of, uh, I mean, I think relative risk. Uh, the U.S. is still safer than a lot of these other places, but at the same time, there is no risk-free country, including ours. We've had confiscation and revocations of licenses, and things happen here too. But relative to some of those places, you've decided at least to stick with the U.S. and you're in New Mexico. Your Copper's Copper Hills project. Tell us where you're at with that now. You're you're going to do some IP survey, you said? That's right. We've we booked our IP survey a couple months ago and it's taken that long for us to get in the queue, but uh on about July fifteenth the crew is supposed to be mobilized to start working on uh the IP survey, which will take uh twenty to thirty days to complete. And uh myself, our uh geological staff will be down on the site and we'll do more uh, sampling on uh, the main the main showing. And also, there's uh, an area 200 meters by 400 meters that's south of the main showing that uh, came up on uh, the geochem uh, sampling that was uh, done by the private owner previously. So we're going to be looking, taking a closer look at that area as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you there was a historic bulk sample taken there at one time in the past. Talk to us about that. That's right. There was a 356-ton sample reportedly to have averaged three ounces of silver and 0.81% copper. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those uh, to get something like that at surface, and uh, when we were down there in May on the property, you can see this, this big area of outcrop that, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty stunning to see. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what else do you know about, I mean, are there some surface expressions that allow you to get some sense of the 
of the size of this uh, of this target? You, you're going. I know you're doing an IP now, but is there anything else that gives you some clue that uh, that this is something that could be significant? Well, we have the five. Uh, again, there were there were five RC holes drilled on the main showing, and uh, we have no assays for those. But it was reported that visually they were showed the same mineralization as what was seen on uh, on the outcrop. So you know that's why we one of the reasons we really liked the project was you know not too many places in the world where you're going to get three ounces of silver and 0.81 percent copper at, at surface potentially. Yeah, so, I guess you could run you could run through the the arithmetic on this and see what that would be on a per ton basis. But if four dollar copper and I don't know what silver at thirty five bucks or so, it would be uh, pretty meaningful uh, surface as well, right? That's right, and it doesn't take a lot of tonnage to potentially have. Uh, uh, a mine down the road mm-hmm. with numbers that high. Uh, you, you also mentioned there's some uh, chip samples that have been taken, and, and they're fairly significant. You believe? That's right. The the chip samples r- returned anywhere from uh, background to over one percent copper, and uh, about six grams to twenty eight grams of silver uh, per ton. Mm-hmm. You uh, you had another property in your scope, but I, I understand you left that go, and um, are there some other things that you're looking at as well? Uh, we're always on the look lookout for, uh, you know, as, as you bring in one project, you always look for a second or a third project to be bigger than your first one, and that's what we're in the process of doing right now, and that's that's an ongoing process. You mentioned also that you are uh, using, you say you're targeting southwestern U.S. with a competitive advantage of using solar energy to improve mining economics. Talk to us a little bit about that. What are you doing there? We have a a subsidiary in our company, uh, Global Solar Water Power Systems out of California, Mm -hmm. and they've been uh, active in developing new technologies using solar. One, they have uh, solar water purification systems. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're very good with uh, portable solar PV systems, and uh, so we've run numbers. And uh, you know, in real-world installations, they're working on a project now in the Navajo Nation in Arizona, where it's everything's off-grid, and they're providing power to people that have never had electricity before. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, certainly nice if it, if the economics work. I want to ask you as well about the. Uh, your own economics, you're, you don't have an awful lot of money in the till. I know your burn rate is lower than, than many, if not most, junior mining companies, but uh, are you going to need to raise some more money sometime soon? We've, uh, we announced here a week ago that we're looking to raise uh, $500,000, and so that's, okay. that's, that's in process right now. And how far will that take you? Oh, that would take us through uh, to next year, that's for sure. Next year. Okay, so what we would look for then are some, I guess, uh, some results from your IP survey that will be uh, that you'll have out. How soon might we look for that? Uh, what we're going to be doing is once the IP survey is completed, we'll, then we'll update our 43-101 report. So um, weather dependent, as long as, uh, you know, we get into the, the summer season in New Mexico and you get those afternoon thunderstorms. But uh, we would expect right now that sometime around the end of August, we should have an updated uh, 43-101 report to put mm-hmm. out to show what we'll be doing next at, at Copper Hills. Excellent. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we conclude our discussion today? Yeah, I think we need to take a, take a good hard look at, uh, 
at our company and see what we're doing and follow our story. And your website? is entertopia.com. Entertopia.com. Well, excellent. Well, thank you, Robert, very much uh, for coming on and sharing your story with us. I wish you all the best and uh, hope to keep up with you in the future. Thank, thank you, Jay. I look forward to chatting to you as well in the future. Great. Okay. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to take a commercial break now. And when we come back, we're going to have both Doug Casey and Rick Rule with us, two very successful investors uh, who are always worth listening to. Lots of uh, great ideas coming from both of these gentlemen. Uh, You won't want to miss them, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Auriga Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Auriga's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground rent, year-round roads, and exploration access. Auriga plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Auriga Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Dravali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Dravali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. 
That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me two seasoned and very successful investors. I'm talking about Doug Casey and Rick Rule. Doug Casey has also been a very successful author, having written a book titled Crisis Investing. That was quite a few years ago, actually, during the 1970s, when we had another crisis, uh, with, uh, which in re- retrospect doesn't seem all like all that much of a crisis compared to some of the things we've gone through recently, but at the time it seemed pretty serious. I was old enough to remember it. In fact, remember seeing Doug on national television to talk about his book on one of the morning shows in New York City. Rick Rule has been a very successful investor as well, and uh, through his brokerage firm uh, has helped many other people uh, be very successful. Has made a lot of wealth for not only himself and his family, but a lot of other people. I think it's fair to say uh, both of these men, uh, whom I look up to in many ways, are are very good friends uh, and colleagues. Uh, Both are also great lovers of liberty and, as such, are proponents of limited government. And both Rick and Doug have been uh, on this show before, and because I share their belief that personal uh, responsibility and liberty are prerequisites for a just and prosperous society, um, and essentially for happiness, well, I'm really pleased to have both of them back. Welcome, Doug, and welcome, Rick, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks, Jay. Pleasure. Pleasure, Jay. Really good to have you guys, and thank you for taking your valuable time. I know both of you are international travelers, and uh, you live at least part of your year outside of the United States, and you have wisely hedged your bets, I think, by probably having some assets out of the United States as well. And, uh, but I would like to ask you to try to think as an American, if you can. Uh, Doug, you wrote Crisis Investing in the 1970s, and on a scale of 1 to 10, Ten being the most extreme, how would you rate the current crisis? Uh, how would how would you rate the crisis of the 1970s on a scale of one to ten? That's a good question. Of course, um, it depends on how far back in history we want to go. But uh, if um, one is uh, a minor upset that lasts uh, a week on the national media, and let's say ten is like a global war. Let's say what we had in the 70s was uh, was like a, a four or a five. It was mm-hmm. serious. Mm-hmm. But uh, what we're looking at now is uh, is moving into uh, an eight or a nine. Mm. It's much, much more serious. Mm. And it's going to be deeper and last longer. Now, progress is going to continue. Uh, people will continue inventing new technologies, and individuals will keep, as individuals, hopefully producing more than they consume and saving the difference. So, you know, life is going to continue getting better, I think, but that doesn't mean that we're not in for some really, really nasty and unpleasant times. That's what I'm banking on. Mm-hmm. Rick, uh, same question. How would you rate the 1970s on a scale of 1 to 10? I think Doug is a better social observer than I, but I, I, I support his conclusions. Mm-hmm. The um, set of circumstances in the 70s struck me as a very young man, as pretty severe at the time. You'll remember that there was, in addition to economic dislocation, social dislocation that included, you know, violence on the street. And the dislocations in society uh, were severe enough that when I was deciding where I was going to go to university, 
um, both the chaos on the street and the Vietnam War caused me to choose Canada. So the impact of on myself of the situations in the 60s and 70s was severe enough uh, that I actually chose to at least temporarily expatriate. I think the difficulty that we face now is that we're coming into uh, a crisis of perhaps similar proportion, except that we're coming into this crisis insolvent. Uh, mm-hmm. And we came into that crisis substantially more solvent than we are now. Of course, at that point in time, uh, we were trying to fight uh, one war, and now we appear to be prepared to fight uh, two or more wars. So I suspect, unfortunately, that Doug is right, both in terms of the way he described the first crisis and in the way he described the relationship between this crisis and that crisis. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that we were fighting one war, as you say, Rick, uh, in, in the 1970s, 1960s, 1970s. There was a whole lot of complaints on college campuses. There was a lot of ruckus. There was a lot of, oh, you know, people were, there, there seemed to be more of a balance in the media, I would say. Um, at, at least the anti-war people were given some coverage in the, in the media. It doesn't seem to be the case now. Any ideas why? I, I don't. I mean, uh, again, Doug is a more adept social commentator than me. It mm-hmm. may uh, reflect a broader degree of apathy uh, mm-hmm. in America, or it may reflect uh, lingering um, outrage uh, on the part of Americans for the fact that uh, we were, in fact, attacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it may be as a consequence of uh, you know, Mr. Bin Laden's activities that there has there at least appears to have been broader public support for uh, our actions in Iraq and Afghanistan than there was for our actions in Vietnam. But I'd be more interested in Doug's opinion, frankly, than my yeah. own. Yeah, well, that's, that's I, I agree with say. Rick, but yeah. then again, I tend to agree with Rick on almost <laughs> almost everything. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, yes, I think that those I think Rick's comments are are, are quite well taken and correct. Uh, I would. I would add two other possibilities. Uh, one is that uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, there was a draft, and uh, that was very inconvenient for many of <laughs> and, and so we took it personally at that time. And now we have, instead of a slave army, which is what I call a bunch of draftees, we have a mercenary army, uh, which is better. Uh, but, uh, you know, unless you want to join the army, then uh, who gives a damn? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's number one. And, and uh, the second thing I'd add on to the two points Rick made is that uh, the standard of living uh, is higher now in the U.S. than it was then. And, and the higher standard of living that you have, uh, generally, the the more soft and easygoing and, you know, kind of less involved in what's going on outside of your cocoon you are. I think that's an element. It's hard to qualify, quantify, but I, I think that might be there, too. Yeah, it certainly seems the, the notion that a volunteer army, which, which came in under Richard Nixon, was uh, more agreeable to, to people, certainly. But And I, what I see uh, from the people that I've observed, a lot of the people that I've observed have gone into the military because they can't find jobs. We have a horrendous economy, I think, you, I think it's fair to say, in the U.S., probably a higher unemployment rate than is let on. Uh, by the uh, official statistics, if you believe uh, John Williams and his work. 
Um, but Doug, I'm still really troubled by this notion of um, non-reporting of a lot of things that seem to be very, very important. And you pointed out before we went on the air that one individual took the extreme, um, the extreme action of setting himself on fire in New Hampshire. Would you care to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, I uh, I became aware of this last week, but not because uh, it was. Uh on the front page or even the back page of the New York Times, or not because I heard it on CNN or Fox or anything. Uh, I heard it over the Internet, and then, of course, I, I checked it out. And it turns out that last week a guy named Tom Ball, B-A-L-L, in uh, New Hampshire, set himself on fire, self-immolated himself on the courthouse steps of this little town in New Hampshire he was because uh, he'd gotten caught up in the legal system with his kids and all that. I can't remember the details. It made his life miserable. He was caught in the clutches of the state for a couple of years. It effectively bankrupted him, I guess. And he set himself on fire. Now, I found this interesting because when Buddhist monks were setting themselves on fire during the Vietnam War, that caused a big international stir. I mean, self-immolation... I don't care. It doesn't happen mm -hmm. uh, anywhere, mm -hmm. almost. And then, when's the last self-immolation you've heard of, heard of since the Vietnam War? It was uh, in, in, in Tunisia six mm -hmm. months ago, which set off the whole thing that's happened in uh, the Arab world. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't think of any others. I, I guess mm -hmm. I could Google it, and there must be some others. Mm -hmm. But here, but I've never heard of a self-immolation in the U.S., ever. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a political self-immolation, and it wasn't reported anywhere. Mm -hmm. Now, this is shocking to me. I can't yeah. believe it. What the hell is going on here? Yeah. Something that major doesn't make the news, and nobody's yeah. heard about it. Yeah. Nobody's heard about it. Yeah, it is a little shocking for sure. And, I, you know, when I went and looked at did a little bit of research on it myself, I... It seemed to me that was sort of the way it was explained was it was just sort of a, a, a family issue, something that was, you know, or maybe they want this guy to look like he's, you know, like he's nuts or something, and, and they marginalize it that way. But I agree with you. I mean, if somebody wants to take their life, there's an awful lot of easier ways to do it than to uh, set themselves on fire. So, But, again, it's just it seems to me there are some, you know, really important things. And, and I, you just mentioned the Internet, Doug. The Internet provides people with with facts and there's a lot of fiction there too for sure but there there are truths in the internet that you can't get in the mainstream that i think is is very important it's troubling to me that the media isn't picking up on what i think at least are some very very important things that would be one of them but certainly what is really going on in the economy rather than you know sort of the, the, the sort of pasted over version of what's going on and, and let's get back to the uh, to the equity markets, or let's get on to the equity markets. We haven't really talked about them yet. But Ian McAvity was recently a guest on this show, and he he suggested that we are in a secular bear market. That he he dates back to the year 2000 at the top of the internet bubble, and Ian believes that we will ultimately take out the March 2009 lows. That we're still in this secular bear market. Uh, would I, either of you care to comment on that? Do you have views on that? Are we in a secular bear market, or or not? Who goes first, Rick? You or me? Uh, why don't you, Doug? I'll, I'll bet clean up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, my, my view on it is, is that uh, Ian's a, a very astute observer of, of, of the markets, 
And I'd have to agree with what he says. I'd have to agree with because in real terms, let's say in terms of gold, or even in terms of real after-inflation dollars, uh, the stock market's lower now than it was in 2009. Uh, so trends in motion tend to stay in motion. And I think the only reason that it's as high as it is right now is because the U.S. government and lots of other governments, like the Chinese government, uh, the Japanese government, lots of governments around the world have been creating trillions of currency units. And a lot of those units have gone into the stock market. They have to go someplace. So uh, I'm a believer that we've embarked upon something that I call the Greater Depression, because it's going to be much more serious than what happened in the 1930s. And uh, I think part of it is going to be a low stock market. Another reason that I think the stock market hasn't bottomed is because people are still too interested in it, quite frankly. So, uh, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bear. Uh, a bear on the economy, a bear on stocks, a bear on bonds, a bear on real estate. I'm a bear on almost everything today. So, but you don't, you, but Doug, you don't necessarily see the the Dow going down in nominal terms uh, below its 2009 lows, perhaps. You're saying in real terms. I because it's a question of the of the dollar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very hard to compute things in the in the dollar. Just as Argentines have found that it's it's idiotic to keep track of things in pesos, and the Brazilians found keeping track of things in cruzeros or mm-hmm. cruzados, another currency they had is, is pointless. Yeah. Uh, the, the dollar is a, it's a, it's a floating abstraction at, at this point. So, uh, you know, Indeed. I, uh, Rick, any thoughts on, on secular or secular bear market still intact or not? Yeah, that, that was a sadly moderate statement by Doug. Um, normally, I prefer following Doug in interviews because he's the only one in the world that can make me appear moderate in an interview. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, my caution, I think, for your listeners, Jay, mm-hmm. would be that the whole set of circumstances that caused the extraordinary lack of liquidity and crisis of confidence in 2008 from my point of view, haven't been dealt with. Mm -hmm. And the idea that uh, a set of circumstances that produced that sort of result that haven't been dealt with, the probability that that sort of result wouldn't reoccur doesn't seem very likely to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, We, we, as an example, I'm sure we'll talk about Greece later, Mm -hmm. But the suggestion that a society that's encumbered with debt at 160% of GDP is going to be better served by raising their debt to 171 or 172% of GDP is the sort of math that I think we're confronted with throughout the the social or set of social solutions to our market problems. Mm -hmm. It's very, very, very difficult for me to envision an economy that is dragged down by debt, dragged down by disallocation, dragged down by overregulation, dragged down by all these types of things, cured by the very sets of circumstances that are dragging it down. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for me to see a happy outcome from that. Um, As you point out, the, um, as an example, the unemployment numbers in the United States, I think, are in the first instance uh, exaggerated the wrong way. In other words, I think unemployment 
is higher than it's uh, been stated to be. Mm-hmm. But I think what's more concerning is that the number of people in today's global economy that in the United States are basically unemployable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the real problem. I think you had a set of circ- we have a set of circumstances in the United States where if circumstances in the broad economy were less dire, there is still a group of people and a large group of people in the United States that don't generate enough utility on a global basis to pay them the income uh, that they've become accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing that in Greece. I think we're seeing it in other places. Mm-hmm. And I think that that'll manifest itself in terms of the social response to these conditions mm-hmm. and will, of course, manifest itself in equity markets. And I don't think the manifestation will be pleasant. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, the uh, response from the politicians then is to uh, force those who are employable, who do provide something of value to society, to subsidize those who are not. And the interesting question that's playing itself out in Greece, I suppose, right now is, you know, how does this come out and how far can it go before the system is so bankrupt that it cannot go on that way? Our mutual friend, Bill Bonner, you may recall, talked about the uh, Greek events about a year ago on the Daily Reckoning. Mm-hmm. And he said an interesting thing. He said, you have to decide who's going to be victim. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be the saver who bought mm-hmm. the Greek bonds? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be the entitlement beneficiary who has come to believe that he or she is entitled to more than they're going to receive? Or is it going to be the worker who is expected to pay for all this? Mm. His projected answer was yes. Mm. It will be all three. And mm-hmm. I would suspect that that is going to be the answer, not just in Greece, but in a variety of places. And I don't suspect that any of those, any of the three of those constituencies will be happy about the outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, as, uh, as an investor, then, the question is, how does this thing play itself out? And uh, this gets back to, a, I'm sure, a question you're tired of hearing from me and other people. Uh, inflation or deflation, one answer also that's similar to the one you just gave me, uh, Rick, is yes. It's going to be both. That's right. Uh, And I think we're having both now. Yet still, there are people that I've had on this show, uh, really bright people that are very, very good thinkers, the likes of, um, well, on the deflation side, Robert Prechter's been on here, uh, Ian Gordon, uh, Bob Hoy, uh, who is pretty highly respected uh, on the inflation side. And, I mean, these are people that say it's going to go one way or the other. On the inflation side, Doug's been on before, and I know, I think, Doug, unless you've changed your mind, you're still leaning in that direction. Uh, perhaps hyperinflation, Mark Faber, um, Richard Mayberry's been on, and uh, these are, Ron Paul, these are people who are all of the opinion that we're going to definitely, you know, it's going to tip towards uh, probably hyperinflation even. Uh, and yet, you know, I mean, it, it, so maybe it goes both ways, um, but it makes all the difference in the world how to invest, um, it seems to me. Or, or maybe I'm just being too simplistic. Maybe we really have to well, – well, how do you – how do the two of you approach it? Doug, how do you approach this issue? Uh, as to whether we're going to have inflation or deflation? Yeah, I mean, in general, how do you, you – you have to make investment decisions all the time. And if we're heading into a hyperinflationary environment, I know for one thing, that's not good for gold mining companies. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily bode well if your costs are going up faster than your expenses. Well, and we've that's seen... right. You, you know, I, I hate to say something, Jay, that sounds – uh, radical and mm-hmm. outrageous, and, and may not at the same time be necessarily helpful to mm-hmm. listeners. But uh, I would say this: uh, 
you're looking at something over the next five or ten years, I'm not talking about one or two years, although that too, that is going to be a world-class catastrophe. This is really, really ugly. Mm-hmm. And it's going to end with the destruction of the dollar. And this is really a catastrophe because many times in the past, we've had individual countries destroy their currencies. Well, mm-hmm. most recently, uh, the uh, Zimbabwe dollar was destroyed. And people say, well, so what? That's Zimbabwe. But the trouble is this, is that the, do- the U.S. dollar is the world's currency. It's the de facto day-to-day currency in 50 countries around the world. All of the central banks of the world hold dollars as their main assets, and all of the productive people of the world save in dollars. They don't mm. save in Zambian quatches or, uh, or, or Vietnamese dong if they can help it. Uh, if they're going to save in a currency, it's a dollar. So when the dollar is destroyed, it's going to destroy... Uh, everything that productive people have put aside for their for their retirement, for their future, for their children, it's going to be wiped out. Now, the real wealth in the world, the buildings, the technologies, uh, the airplanes, things of that nature, that's still going to exist. But um, uh, the fact that people aren't going to have dollars, which were representing that, uh, that those people are going to be left with an empty bag, I mean, this is going to have all kinds of political and social consequences, and it is going to happen. There's no way out of it at this point, uh, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Rick? That's the kind of moderate response I was hoping for from Doug. <laughs> um, I'm not as good a social commentator as Doug, and I, I don't have the sort of broad-ranging expectations uh, or understanding. Um, I do think that deflation involves price discovery, and I think that most elements of society are in denial with regards to price discovery. So the politicians will do what they can to avoid having a price discovery, which would seem to me to be inflationary. Mm -hmm. If a sort of a moderate course is followed, I suspect that past will be prologue and will be revisited by stagflation, Mm -hmm. the enemy of the 70s. Whether or not the situation becomes as dire as Doug suspects uh, is a different set of circumstances. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect myself that at the very least we can experience or should expect extraordinary volatility, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the types of stuff that the three of us do, uh, mm-hmm. extractive industry, equities, extractive industry, debts, and commodities. Uh, I expect that you'll see 30% up moves and 40% down moves. Just incredible, incredible volatility. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, volatility really is a series of 30 or 40% off sales uh, if you have the guts and the liquidity uh, to take advantage of it. Um, all I can say to people looking further out is that you need to attempt, I think, to invest or speculate in things that are less market-related and have some intrinsic value. If you happen to believe, as an example, like I believe, that an increase in living standards in emerging and frontier markets will occur, uh, I think it's a certainty that the utility that poor people derive in expenditures uh, early on in their ascent is materially intensive, energy intensive, and calorie intensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that items that satisfy those needs, energy, food, raw materials, 
will do relatively well in compa- in comparison with other parts of the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I suspect that producers of those uh, elements will do relatively well in well in terms of value, separate and apart from the markets, which I think will be extremely volatile. Perhaps I'm just talking my own book. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I'm trying to make myself feel better in the context of a set of circumstances that will be uh, unpredictable and volatile. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that the basic premise for that point of view is accurate. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I certainly want to get into the second, uh, after the break in about uh, three or four minutes, we're going to take a commercial break, and I want to get into some of the specific uh, markets, uh, metals markets, energy markets, etc., and see what both of you think and where you uh, think the smart money should go these days. But before we go there, perhaps one other uh, question before we go to the break, and this has to do with uh, again, with the notion that the dollar is heading for zero or heading into the dustbin of history, when I hear a speech from Hillary Clinton in Pakistan, and she is she is really uh, reprimanding the Pakistanis for not being more effective in tracking down the terrorists. This was after we had uh, allegedly caught bin Laden. And she's warning the Pakistani officials that if they aren't more diligent, that we might just have to take away your foreign aid. In other words, our bribes to you to keep you, keep, uh, keep you, um, you know, hunting down the Bin Ladens of this world. Well, what happens to our empire, the Anglo-American empire, I like to refer to it as, if Doug is right and our dollar is heading towards zero? Uh, maybe, Doug, you first on that one? Well, all this aid that's being given to the Pakistanis and the Egyptians and the Israelis and uh, a lot of other countries, uh, I guess we can keep doing it as long as you can keep borrowing money from the Chinese. So the Chinese lend, lend us the money to give away to these other countries. And then maybe those other countries come back and, 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 and buy F-16s and M1 tanks from American defense contractors. So it's all very destructive and quite unsustainable. So, uh, and it's making for a very unstable world besides. So, yeah, and I'm wondering uh, why the Chinese would want to continue to buy our treasuries, and maybe they're not any longer. I'm not sure where that stands, but uh, we get reports that they're not, at least certainly not buying them as aggressively as they were before. Uh, but, Rick, do you have any thoughts on that issue? The question's too big for me, I'm afraid, Jay. <laughs> oh, I doubt that. But anyway, uh, if, you'd, uh, if you'd like to pass on it, we heard from Doug. Well, and what, I mean, it seems let me, to me really sort of, um, sort of um, you know, why, I mean, the question for me is why would the Chinese want to keep, I mean, it was, increasingly it seems to me there's an alliance, geo, geopolitical alliance between, uh, let's say, perhaps China and Russia and Iran, um, maybe you could look at a couple of the South American countries, uh, and, and they don't particularly like the United States, and probably for some reasons that are not that are fairly well to understand. But um, uh, but, it, but it just seems to me that it's very difficult to expect the Chinese to keep buying our treasuries if, in fact, we're competing with them for the world's resources for energy, for metals, and everything else. Any maybe, thoughts from maybe, either of you on that? Maybe the Chinese are better credit analysts than I am. <laughs> you know, I, I regard myself as a you know basically a credit analyst. Uh-huh. I wouldn't loan us any money. Uh, you what? I wouldn't loan 
us as a society any money. Well, it, it, you know, uh, it, it would seem that the unencumbered collateral that they're looking on, looking at, is the future earnings potential of five to seven percent of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. And when I look out at what we allegedly owe ourselves in the context of Social Security and Medicare, uh, I would suggest that we're under collateralized. So mm-hmm. I personally wouldn't lend us any money. But as I say, maybe the Chinese are more sophisticated than I am. And, and as you said, Rick, uh, it's allegedly or ourselves because we don't owe it to ourselves some people or some classes of people uh, supposedly owe it to some other classes of people and uh, I think the people that are on the paying end are gonna get really unhappy about it just as unhappy as the people that think they're they're owed that that want the money are gonna get unhappy when they don't get it <laughs> there's gonna be a lot of unhappy people and the US government is running a what is it? Is it one trillion? Is it a trillion and a half dollars uh, yeah. deficit this year? Mm-hmm. And that's not on a cash basis. That's not on the more accurate accrual basis mm-hmm. of computing these things. Where are they going to get the money? Who's mm-hmm. going to lend them that money in addition to rolling over the old debt? Well, they're going to sell it to the Federal Reserve. Is what's going to happen? No, that's Which what's is been happening in QE2 is, is so just about over. There's no way out of this at this point. Yeah, that QE2 is uh, over. What I guess probably what you're saying then, Doug, is we can expect a QE3, or as Mark Faber says, a QE24, an ongoing... There's, there's um, no way out of it. I mean, uh, I, I would not want to be the president of the United States at this point because he's uh, he's the captain of the Titanic. Yeah. Well, you're getting uh, all of about five basis points for uh, for lending your money to the government short term, and I think you know ten year money is is you know it's just ridiculous if you think the inflation rate is uh, along the lines of what John Williams is talking about, and you're really looking at negative real interest rates, which don't make any sense, and certainly policies would seem to be upside down. I think the three of us would probably all agree on that. Well, I think we're going to go to uh, we'll go to a commercial break right now, and as soon as we come back, I want to get into some of the more specific uh, investments and some of the markets that the three of us are involved in. I want to get your thoughts on, on those various markets as soon as we come back. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with Rick Reel and Doug Casey. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Enertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Enertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CNS. Exchange. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. 
Origa Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Origa's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground rent, year-round roads, and exploration access. Origa plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Origa Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA. Dravali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Dravali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. 